Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to episode one. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, head of the Centre for Army Leadership, co-hosting today with Professor Lloyd Clark, Director of Research here at the Cal. And it is our absolute pleasure to introduce our first guest, Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mark Carlton-Smith. As head of the British Army, CGS's career has spanned almost four decades, including Command of the Special Air Service, 16 Air Assault Brigade, and Director of Special Forces. On the executive staff, he has served as the Army's Director of Strategy, as well as Defence's lead for military strategy and operations. General Sir Mark Carlton-Smith has served as the professional head of the Army since June 2018. General, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. May I start by asking, what is your leadership philosophy? How do you describe yourself as a leader? What are your key tenets? Well, if we're going to talk in sort of philosophical terms about it, almost the sort of simplest explanation of my philosophy is do as you would be done by. Because fundamentally the leadership journey that I've been on has taken me from a position of believing that leaders tended to be born, and I still think there's a, there is a genetic quality about leadership that makes you either less or better disposed to the t- demands of leadership. But actually, the reality is leaders uh, may be born with some potential native virtues for leadership but it's all about the nurture and the, and the education. The bulk of the education is actually self-education. And leadership, therefore, is not about who you are, but actually about how you behave. And it's about bringing out the talent and the best of other people and having, in a sense, the empathetic feel for how to operate through other people. And, you know, it comes together in one's relative ability, I think, to bend people effectively to your will and your vision by persuading them of its relative merits and then giving them the freedom to deliver on them. So that sort of put rather sort of Mm -hmm. generically is how I view it. And the central tenets since you asked, I think fundamental to it is mutual respect. Secondly, this sense of empathy, because leadership's currency of people and their perception. And if you can't read that and understand your people, you can't offer them the style, tone and atmosphere that sets the conditions to bring the best out of them. And thirdly, as a tenant, the nature of of self-sacrifice associated with leaders, and hence, you know, the Sandhurst serve to lead peace, is absolutely that. Most people, if you ask them to draw a, a, a diagram of leadership, might draw a triangle with the leader at the top. It's very interesting if you just invert that triangle and the leader sits at the at the bottom. And he's looking up across, you know, a vast base that 
is above him. And that's, in a sense, the, the nature of serve to lead. I also think um, leadership has got both hard and soft qualities associated with it, particularly in the military context. So on the one hand, it is about co-option and persuasion and setting an example. But it can also be about coercion and single-mindedness and ruthlessness in order to get difficult and unpopular things done in the most unfavorable set of circumstances. So um, leadership's not, in that respect, about fairness. It's about getting getting the best out of everybody, but in the best interests of the whole. And if, if you just explore that journey that you spoke about to lead you to where we are today and what you've just described, where are those influences? You say, you say there's an element of, of nature versus uh, nurture. If we can just explore that nurture, what is it in that's really shaped you, General Carlton Smith, today as a leader, both before the army, during the army? And are some of those tenets are they are they sort of in, were they ingrained in you from an early age, or have you developed them and learnt them and well uh, through your career? Part of it is, in a sense, the the climate in which one's been nurtured. And to what extent was one sub- subject to either effective or ineffective leadership? And what were the qualities that defined those to whom one was naturally attracted from those from whom one was not? And what did one find infectious about leadership? Because in part of your questions here, you talk about, in a sense, the distinction between command, leadership and management and all the rest of it. You may want to come on to that. But when one thinks about inspirational leadership, there is an infectious quality to inspirational leadership. But the nature of that infection is probably different given the circumstances and indeed the the community that is being led. And so I think rather, you know, parochially, there's no doubt that one was nurtured at school. And the critical features of that instilled self-confidence and self-discipline, intellectual curiosity, and aligned with self-confidence, independence of thought, which meant that one was being encouraged and one was being encouraged to learn, not just the, the discipline of the academic syllabus, but in how to behave and how to flourish and how to influence and how to apply authority to uh, you know, a community of schoolboys who were the least inclined to any of that authority. In fact, were seemed tailor-made to challenge it. And a lot of that is about being given one's head. But in a, in a culture whereby when mistakes were made, your head was never cut off. In fact, it was continued to be invested in because you were learning. Um, 
And I think that, you know, the journey that one goes on is it starts with understanding yourself and one's strengths and weaknesses and one's convictions. It's difficult to be an effective leader and have the courage of one's convictions if one doesn't really have any conviction. And that only comes with experience and maturity, but that's part of the natural osmosis of life of growing up, understanding who you are and what you stand for. The second aspect then is understanding the environment in which one is being asked to lead. And fundamental to that is understanding the organisation. It always struck me as odd that junior officers and arrival in their regiments and their battalions would seemingly exist in the narrow parochial boundaries of their troop or their platoon. And in fact, the entire microcosm of their world was that subunit. And it was very rare to see a young officer interested in how the MT worked and what happened in the quartermaster's department and how ranges were or were not booked and the ammunition was indented for. And instilling this you know, professional curiosity to understand the organisation of which one is then still but a very small and reasonably inconsequential cog is vital to beginning to understand the ecosystem that one needs subsequently to know how to work. Um, and the third thing is, of course, understanding the people, all of whom have got their own particular circumstances and inclinations. So getting the pitch right to the tribe is one of the sort of vital elements of communication surrounding leadership. No one size fits all. Mm -hmm. A parachute battalion will you know, offer a different set of leadership challenges to a Remy battalion. And a group of 20-year-olds will, will need to be led and probably directed in a way that a group of 50-year-old general officers just need some gentle persuasion. And so recognising that one size, you know, doesn't fit all is, is vital to it and is critical to the correct, you know, an intelligent application of mission command at the end of the day. Because, as you will know, you don't treat, you know, all three or four subunit commanders in exactly the same way. You play them to their, to their own particular and unique strengths and you protect them and support them, you know, where they are less sound or confident or indeed competent. So um, I think that's an important element to it. There's quite a lot to unpack there from an organisational perspective, but if we could finish off first with your personal journey, were there any influential individuals or critical moments in your career that challenged you or focused your thinking and therefore shaped your development as a leader? I was a platoon commander in a rifle company that produced two commanding officers of the SAS, a main board director of Rolls-Royce, and a chief of the general staff. So something was happening in that rifle company about how we were being incubated. And we were being commanded by a 34-year-old major who retired as 
quite old colonel. So in army terms, not someone who got to the top, but there was something in his style and his manner, clearly with his junior officers, that he set fire to an ambition and a confidence that gave legs, you know, certainly to that generation of platoon commanders. But funnily enough, was also true to the section commanders and no doubt some of the guardsmen. Um, and part of his trick was just paying very careful patrician attention to inculcating the very best in us and exposing us to the full variety of challenges that came across his desk as the company commander. And so there was very little that happened in the company that he did not share with us and talk us through and explain how he was approaching a particular problem uh, and the decision that he was going to make and what compromises he had judged may or may not be appropriate. He was very good at giving one one's head and one's opportunity, but then appearing miraculously at the critical moment before one left proverbially off the cliff. And or otherwise, just tightening the rein and checking that you did understand the context, you did physically know where the hell you were, you understood the wider dependencies and who was going to be relying on you to be at the right place at the right time with the right kit, with the right plan. And if one could persuade him that one was on the ball, again, one was pretty well entirely off the leash. And then when one made mistakes, which was the object of the exercise, mm -hmm. he was very systematic about going back through about how we could have done this better and what we had learned. And he just, you know, on Monday mornings, after a long weekend, as he, you know, saw one in the company office or whatever, almost his first question, just as a, as a manner of speaking, would be, so what did you learn this weekend? Knowing that you'd just, you know, been shacked up with one's girlfriend for you know, 72 hours or whatever. What did you learn this weekend? And, you know, it was a constant like that. Uh, and he, he forgave mistakes, crucially. So one was inclined to press, not hold back. Mm -hmm. And I think all that, that set a sort of tone and, as I said, style and atmosphere that clearly stood people in good stead. Um, thereafter... The sort of the, the crucial experiences was learning how to, you know, tackle different generations. And I always felt that you had at each stage to change one style of command. There was no point assuming you could command your company in exactly the same way that you had commanded one's platoon, because there is a distinct difference, because one does command soldiers directly as a platoon commander, as a company commander. One command soldiers through officers. Yeah. Which was, of course, the trick of my company commander. Uh, and therefore, you have to adapt your style of command at every level. And I don't think 
everybody recognizes and understands that. Some people take the chemistry that had done them well as a subaltern or as a major and try apply exactly the same template to their command at regimental level. And it probably means that their span and scope is too narrowly drawn. And it's absolutely catastrophic if they try and do it at levels beyond regimental duty. General, you talked about um, self-education being critical in your journey. And just really a reflection um, on what you've just been saying about your company commander. Did you feel that you were traveling perhaps so fast on that journey that it was difficult perhaps to reflect upon leadership? Or did you find that there was time and space to think, okay, this is where I am now. This is what I've learned. This is where I'm going. Now, what do I feel No, about? what I've described is the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Because aged 21, 22, I was not thinking in those terms. Um, I, w- I appreciated the manner and the style of the company commander. But I didn't sit back and reflect on, therefore, who am I as a leader and how does my style either reflect the, the, the merits or otherwise of the, the context in which I'm in. Yeah. I think, the, although this was happening subliminally through this process of osmosis rather than having our noses rubbed in it, And the first time I very systematically thought about how I was going to command was before subunit command, where I did decide to think quite carefully about how I wanted to command my company. And I was fortunate in the sense that I had two bites of the cherry because I commanded a rifle company and then a SAS Sabre Squadron with about two and a half years in between. So as a very young company commander, where one learned a lot, and then a much wiser squadron commander. And that is the first level, I think, whereby trying to really codify what command means to one and how one's going to apply it to the specific circumstances of that rifle company and that two-year window, you know, is... Time well spent. And your reflections afterwards? Did you look back and think, post-subunit command or, or unit command, that you led as you had intended to going into command? It seemed a near seamless journey because I came out of squadron command to brigade chief of staff. And that's an interesting staff appointment because the reality is, firstly, you command the headquarters. And secondly, depending on the, on the character of the brigade commander, I always used to say as a brigade chief of staff, I, I thought I ran the brigade. And it was only until I was a brigade commander that I realised that I'd been right all along. The chief of staff does run the brigade. Thank God. Um, but yes, I think from that stage of subunit command, one began to realise you know, that one was, you know, needing to think about command and its application. Well, let me qualify that. Leadership, yes, because it felt still quite raw and pure. Because command of a rifle company, you know, you're a centurion at the end of the day, and that's right in the direct fire zone. And so you're both applying 
you know, professional soldiering skills and applying battle leadership and all the rest of it. So it's the absolute culmination of every, everything you want to do and everybody you've ever wanted to be, which is why, for me, commanding a subunit at war, nothing beats it. It's why I stayed in the army. Um, thereafter, you're beginning to blend that pure, raw leadership into actually rather grown-up command and management responsibilities, which is another set of skills and education and experience that you have to bring to bear. And the relative balance between you know, leadership and management begins to change over time. So you might say by the time you're a general officer, quite a lot of your time is spent in terms of managing a large complex institution and organization. It's much less about leading and inspiring a single generation who have a single purpose, as it were, which is why I still think, therefore, company command is that last safe moment where life is just so simple. It's about you and people. And could you sum up how you define that interplay between command, leadership and management? I think command is, in many respects, the distillation of those two. Okay. Uh, it's, it's clearly part leadership, but command is also part management, as it were. Because you're beginning, command comes together, in a sense, with respect to the vision, the leadership, the direction, and the organization of an institution. So leadership is about people and is much more empathetic. Management is much more science. So it's where science meets art at the end of the day. Just touching on leadership as you have progressed through the ranks and into the general staff executive part of the organisation, have you felt prepared as a leader for this transition and how have you used your leadership differently at this level? Well, you're right to say the demand obviously changes and the degree to which the organisation can continue to prepare you uh, is, I think, mixed we do pretty well at preparing our leaders for as broad a scope of operational mm -hmm. challenge and demand. We probably do much less well at preparing ourselves for the management challenges of running defence and organisations and indeed institutions. And we've probably got, in some respects, more to learn about management from some other public sector and private sector organizations in the manner that they've got more to learn about leadership from us. Mm -hmm. And bringing those two together on the Venn diagram is probably where you find in each generation the increasingly small pool of officers who are going to go and end up and, and run the show. Uh, Sometimes one might ask whether one's all been selected through the rather narrow criteria, though, of professional operational 
demands. You know, does the best company commander become the best commanding officer? Is the best commanding officer going to actually be the best brigade commander? Or do the criteria for our leaders change over time? I think they do change over time. It's absolutely great if you get somebody who once upon a time was the best platoon commander in the company and the battalion and all the rest of it, and nearly 40 years later, he's also the best strategic and visionary leader in the organization. But there's absolutely no rhyme or reason why that's a direct extrapolation. People mature at different times and therefore stages in their career and aptitudes that were really important in your 20s like being robust, athletic, resilient, cheerful, and all the rest of it, might be surely slightly less important in your 40s when being intelligent and diligent and applied and all the rest of it are much more important. And that's why some people are stars in their 20s and not in their 40s and vice versa. And the danger of our system that still, in a sense, rewards the gladiators is that it's quite difficult to come high and late in our organization because we've made some decisions about you in your late 20s and early 30s and probably streamed you as a result. And the product of those streams has exposed you to a given and particular set of circumstances, which may or may not equip you when you aggregate them for the very most senior appointments. Mm -hmm. But that individual might have been disadvantaged because they've matured at a different time and they're really coming good and getting better the older they become, whereas there's a different genre whose optic gets narrower the older they become. If we can move on now to some organisational issues of leadership, and if we were to step back, how would you define what British Army leadership is today and what makes it unique? I think the the underlying foundations for British Army leadership do rest on the notion of mutual respect, self-sacrifice, and empathy. And what makes it unique is not that any of those qualities are any more or less important in this organization than any other organization, but it's the circumstances in which they're applied. And of course, at its most extreme, one is demanding of people the most unnatural of reactions. When every single sinew and fibre of their body is persuading them not to react in the way that you're asking them to. And it's that curious alchemy of persuasion, coercion, example, and occasionally single-minded, bloody-minded ruthlessness that makes ordinary people do extraordinary things in the most dramatic of circumstances. And that's what makes it unique. Would you draw any differentiation, therefore, between British Army leadership and, say, 
American army leadership because clearly what you've just said there, mutual respect, self-sacrifice, empathy, I'm sure Americans would relate to as well. But is there something specific? Is there something rather unique? There's, there is something unique about it. It's not about our leaders or our leadership code. It's about our soldiers. And you could step back and say, what is the single distinguishing characteristic between the American army and the British army? And I would say, we're analog and they're digital. And the reason we're analog is because we breed the very best soldiers in the world, challenging, bloody-minded, exceptionally demanding of their leaders, questioning of authority, humorous, and nothing can beat the banter, the crack, the cupper, and a fag around the back. And that's the gang. And that endures. That endures. That's the same lot from Chrissy. That's Tommy Atkins. It is. <laughs> Which is why I think I have no real fear for the future of the British Army, because the island race still breeds young men and women of that quality, instinct and temperament. And because of them, that will continue generation by generation to demand of the army's leaders that unique brand and style of British army leadership, which is why German army leadership, the German army, Max Hastings would tell us, was the most professional man-for-man organization in the world in about 43, 44. Very, very different style of leadership. And it would not have worked with, with the British soldier of the time. Many of those characteristics absolutely resonate, but some of those characteristics bring challenges as, as well. And there's evidence through various reports that such challenges tend to be in barracks rather than on operations. Do you think we are preparing our leaders of all ranks to effectively deal with those in barracks challenges or indeed any other challenge of leadership that you perceive across the organisation? I mean, there ought, you'd imagine, not to be a huge change. But the reality is there seems to be and there is. And that's because we don't apply the leadership doctrine that is essential to success on the battlefield in quite the same way in barracks. And one of the reasons we don't apply it in barracks is because I think senior echelons don't encourage and allow those freedoms and are not as forgiving around, you know, creative, entrepreneurial, free-thinking free spirits that they absolutely demand precisely the same people as soon as they're on operations. So it always strikes me as odd that we don't take the best of our style on operations and capitalise on it in barracks. Um, there are, of course, you know, some, some mitigations around that because the outputs are different and therefore lead, you know, tend to favour rather different inputs. But broadly speaking, the philosophy ought to be the same. And I'm not sure that, you know, it's recognised as certain, certainly not applied as such. I mean, I think the sort of emerging challenges 
for tomorrow's leaders. And I think they're distinct for tomorrow's leaders as opposed to my generation, uh, is the pace of change. Pace of cultural change and the pace of technological change. And the requirement for, you know, continuing revolution around digital literacy, really recognizing and understanding the emerging operational possibilities of the technological revolution and how it's going to be applied. Recognizing that we are drawing our people from a much more diverse set of communities. And even if on occasion it doesn't physically look that diverse, people's background experiences actually now really are much more diverse. Uh, and therefore, the cultural challenges and the cultural demands and sort of empathy made on senior leadership is only growing. We see that today very directly through the Black Lives Movement, etc. Um, and I think particularly as people sort of grow through the organization and actually become responsible as ambassadors for the institution of the army, the ability to still continue to underwrite our license to operate, which actually at the end of the day is about trust, integrity, transparent competency and professionalism. The day of the gifted amateur, you know, is increasing over. And to persuade those who task us of our relevance, our utility and our competence. Without, without that sort of umbilical cord of trust, we look like a redundant organisation. So you think there are some changing dynamics in what we are going to be asking of our leaders as opposed to skill sets, technical skill sets and professional competencies? I think it'll be both. They're definitely the latter, professional, technical skill sets. I mean, the skills that we think we may need of our young majors, senior captains, our senior non-commissioned officers and warrant officers in, at the end of this decade are definitely going to look different from those that we have today. And we need to make sure we're incubating them properly because the people who are going to need them are already in the army. We're not going to buy them in laterally. Some particular sophistications and competencies we may have to, and it might may be much the most effective way to do it. Hire the coder rather than train and nurture the coder, maybe. But almost as a generalism, we're all going to have to be much more technically proficient. And how are we doing that? And the fact that, you know, the people who are going to command our rifle companies and be the platoon sergeants and the company sergeant majors, they are all in today's army already. What are we doing about making sure that they are on a professional journey over the balance of the next decade that's going to equip them not to be overwhelmed by this pace of change, that they aren't the first generation who become the boiled frog? Which it must have felt like if you were commanding a company or a battalion or a brigade in the low country in 1940, when you'd arrived, you'd dug in next to the dial 
you've probably in the preceding sort of nine months of phony war done some staff riding and some battlefield tours about where one had been a platoon and a company commander 20 years earlier. And suddenly you're overwhelmed by an air-land battle that hits you square in the face when the British Expeditionary Force was still in operating in one dimension. Of course, the uh, exception to that rule would have been 3rd Division and Monty, who had absolutely prepared them for what they were going to face. And therefore, he rises to the top. He rises to the top. As a result. Despite the fact that in all those interwar years, he had had a very indifferent record. And, you know, a relative suspicion hung over him for being far too serious and professionally focused and not nearly clubbable enough and hail fellow well met. A bloody menace, as he was called at Staff yeah. College. Mm. And the degree to which, when I look at who I think the rising stars are, is there a common denominator? And I think probably there is, because they are and are tending to be people who are very comfortable with risk and broadly see risk as an opportunity rather than a threat. They're undoubtedly uh, independently minded and inclined to look at problems through first principles rather than to try and fit novel problems into set standard templates. They do the opposite. They take the sensible intellectual framework and then apply it in a relevant, intelligent manner to a novel set of circumstances. There are people who are more inclined to problem definition because you do get to a stage where the real challenge is not how do you fix the problem, it's can you identify the problem in the first place. They are people who can get to the right and appropriate detail and evidential data because they can ask the right question rather than ask every question under the sun, swamp the staff, accrue a morass of inconsequential detail and then can't separate out the essential from the trivial. Uh, there are people who recognize that actually their job is to create the freedom to exploit for those who work for them. And so fundamentally, their job is to remove barriers and boundaries and create space. And they also tend to be people who've got the time to listen to the experts and make the point of finding out who that expert is in the first place. And if the prevailing characteristic of any large bureaucracy is inertia, which it is, how they cut through that inertia in order to engage the right gears and the right cogs. And that is part of, of knowing who's who and who the shakers and the movers are. Because the world breaks down into two types, initiators and consolidators. You need a lot of consolidators in a big machine, but you need to know who your initiators are. And you need to use your initiators in positions of initiation rather than wasting them 
in consolidating roles, which are much more mechanistic. And might we need more of them in the future, given the pace of change? Do you think we need more of those initiators? We probably do. But it does take one back almost to where we started, because I, I, I do believe... So I told you about my company commander, which was a sort of defining experience. The next moment when I was acutely conscious of infectious leadership was working for Mike Rose when he commanded the UN Protection Force in Bosnia in 93, 94. He had been the commander of the field army. He was an experienced and very well-known Lieutenant General. He had an immense charisma and mercurial energy that just electrified all the circuits in the most bewildering cat's cradle of a UN apparatus. And he was very clear and insistent on what his priorities were. He used to communicate that very directly to those that he then gave the freedom to execute. And then he would follow up very rapidly in order to test and adjust as to what progress was being made. But above all else, he was fun to be with and to be around because he was also intensely human. And not that he would wear his heart on his sleeve, but you got a real sense that he was sharing all the trials, risks, challenges and tribulations of even the most junior soldier at the same time. And the third, you know, 20 years ago, I worked for Mike Jackson when he was the commander in chief. And Mike Jackson was all of many things, but what he was absolutely was an intensely rich and colorful human being for all his strengths and all his defects. Everyone loved him for both. And he had all the strengths of the defects and all the defects of his strengths. And the whole was much greater than the individual sum of those parts. Because, you know, one, one saw, you know, this absolutely transparent, magnificent man. Final question, General, if I may. One piece of advice you would give a young junior NCO or young officer on day one of his or her leadership journey, what would you say? One word, exploit. General, thank you very much indeed for your time. No, it's been great to see you both. I hope you agree that was a particularly insightful, engaging and honest perspective on leadership from the head of the British Army, General Sir Mark Colton-Smith. And so there concludes the inaugural Centre for Army Leadership podcast. If you have enjoyed what you've heard today, please do subscribe and follow us on social media. But most importantly, please do reflect. What have you learned from this podcast today? What can you take away to improve yourself as a leader? And don't forget that to lead is a verb. It is an action. So what action are you going to take tomorrow to make yourself a better leader?